again, good morning. Well, we uh, are going to finish up today a series we began four weeks ago, which we've entitled, How Can I Know the Will of God? And it's a subject, as I said in the past, uh, every Christian seems consumed with. How can I know God's will in my life? It's, some, it's where we all live. And in the course of this series, we have defined the will of God. We have seen that God has a sovereign will, God has a moral will, and then God has an individual will that pertains uh, specifically to uh, our lives. We sought then to try to discover the will of God, how we could try to go about discovering or discerning God's will. First of all, we said that there is a scriptural will of God and a specific will. The scriptural will of God, of course, is his general will for all, for all of his children's lives, uh, what he has already revealed in the pages of Scripture. We studied that. And then, of course, we got into trying to discern how we could know the specific will of God for our lives. And we said that there are six principles you could, uh, you could use to try to discover God's will in your own life. First of all, you know, is there a definite conviction in your heart uh, about a course of action? Do you feel God has burdened you for some course of action? Number two, whatever you feel burdened to do cannot violate what God has clearly revealed in His Word. So if you're planning on doing something, you feel God's burdening you to do something, but it contradicts what He has already said in His Word, you know that's not the Lord's leading you or speaking to you. Number three, it's important that you stay in close fellowship with the Lord. You want to be led by Him, you've got to be in close fellowship with Him. That's very obvious, very simple. Number four, you need to ask yourself, will this, will this decision be detrimental to my family or to my walk with God? Number five, do the circumstances indicate that God is leading me? Do you sense that doors are opening? that will allow you to take this course of action? Or are they closing? Things are not working out. Be sensitive to that. And number six, seek God for some confirmation from the Word, that He might use the Scriptures in some way to speak to you as to whether or not this is what He wants you to do. Now, this morning, we want to kind of just tie up some loose ends and kind of wrap everything up. And uh, I've just entitled this section, Delving Further into the Will of God. Uh, you might be sitting there thinking, if God's will is so important, and He wants us to walk in it so badly, then why does it seem that He makes knowing His will so difficult? I mean, look, if I'm His child and He's my Father, then why doesn't He just make His will plain? In other words, send me a fax or, you know, I mean... Something like that. I mean, why all the seeming mystery? Why all the tension? Why all the, the pressure? Why all the tears and the fasting and the praying? Listen to me. The answer to that question lies behind this whole issue of knowing God's will. As you read the Bible, you'll find that God is always more interested in revealing himself than simply revealing details about his will for us. God does not want to simply function as an information center, you know, a heavenly 411. In times of pressure, when we need his guidance and direction, what God has in mind 
is using whatever it is that has drawn us to our knees, whatever it is that has caused us to really need some direction and guidance, what he's doing is he is using it to draw us into a more intimate relationship with him. I want you to think about this. During those times in your life, when you were faced with a big decision, I mean, this is something really big, and you really wanted God's guidance, and so you took the time, and maybe over the next few days or even few weeks, you sought him, you prayed, you may have even fasted, you spent time in the Word. At the end of that time, you felt confident that God had given you input, that he had, he had given you some clear direction. You had the information you needed. What you may not have realized was that what you also had was even more important in the eyes of God than the information. What you gained from that experience was a deeper, more intimate knowledge and relationship with Him. See, when we are facing big decisions, and we really, as Christians, want God to lead us in some course of action, we're looking for information. We're looking for God's will. But what God is looking for is a deeper, more intimate relationship with us. That's what he's after. And while the product is important, which is getting the information we need to know what God's will is, for God, the process is just as important, if not more important, because the whole idea of knowing his will is wrapped up in God wanting to draw us to his heart and deepen our relationship with him. That is a very important principle. He is working to reveal himself to you and I because he wants you to walk away from the process with a deeper faith and with a deeper commitment and relationship with him. So embrace the process. Don't rush through the process. Don't be upset because it's taking so long for God to show you what his will is. It's the process that in God's eyes is even more important than the final destination, which is getting the information that you're looking for. And if you miss that, you're going to miss a big part of what it means to know God's will. I think this is kind of beautifully summed up in a poem by Russell Kelfer. I'll read it to you. It goes like this. Desperately, helplessly, longingly, I cried. Quietly, patiently, lovingly, he replied. I pled and I wept for a clue to my fate, and the master so gently said, Child, you must wait. Wait? You say, wait? My indignant reply, Lord, I need answers. I need to know why. Is your hand shortened or have you not heard? By faith I have asked and am claiming your word. My future and all to which I can relate hangs in the balance, and you tell me, Wait? I'm needing a yes, a go-ahead sign, or at least a no to which I can resign. And Lord, I've been asking, and this is my cry. I'm weary of asking. I need a reply. Then quietly, softly, I learned of my fate. As my master replied, once again, you must wait. So I slumped in my chair, defeated and taught, and I grumbled to God, so I'm waiting for what? He seemed then to kneel, and his eyes met with mine, and he tenderly said, I could give you a sign. I could shake the heavens, darken the sun, raise up the dead, cause the mountain to run. 
All you seek, I could give, and pleased you would be, and you would have what you want, but you wouldn't know me. You'd not know the depth of my love for each saint. You'd not know the power that I give to the faint. You'd not learn to see through clouds of despair. You'd not learn to trust just by knowing I'm there. You'd not know the joy of resting in me when darkness and silence was all you could see. You'd never experience that fullness of love as the peace of my spirit descends like a dove. You would know that I give and save for a start, but you'd not know the depth of the beat of my heart, the glow of my comfort late in the night, the faith that I give when you walk without sight, the depth that's beyond getting just what you ask of an infinite God that makes what you have last. And you never would know, should your pain quickly flee, what it means that my grace is sufficient for thee. Yes, your dreams for that loved one one night would come true, but oh the loss if you lost what I'm doing to you. So be silent, my child, and in time you will see that the greatest of gifts is to get to know me. And though oft may my answers seem terribly late, that my most precious answer of all is still wait. Now, maybe you have sought God diligently and maybe you have waited for an answer or some guidance and it still hasn't come. If that is the case, let me give you a few more principles that might help. And remember now, these are principles. They're not laws. Laws are kind of... Uh, you know, unchanging and written in stone. Principles are more flexible. But remember this, discovering God's will is not a scientific formula. It is a spiritual journey. And some of the things I'm going to say over last week and today may seem to contradict each other. I'll try to clarify as much as I can. But it's because these things are not always applied in every life the same way at every time. They're principles. And they fluctuate, they ebb and flow in our lives depending on the situation. That's why we cannot look to them as laws. We have to incorporate them as principles, but experience God ourselves in just letting him lead our lives. This is what the great Scottish preacher Robert Candlish said about that. He said, the will of God can be known only by trial. No one who is a partaker of, an, of a finite nature and who occupies the position of a subject or servant under the authority of God, under his law, can understand what the will of God is otherwise than through actual experience. So it's not a classroom thing, guys. You have to experience this for yourself. You cannot explain to him beforehand what the will of God is and what are the attribu its attributes or characteristics. He must learn this for himself. And, listen, he must learn it experientially. He must prove every individual Christian in his own person and in his own personal history what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So I'll give you some principles. But you know what? You're just going to have to seek God on your own and let him lead you as to how and when you apply or incorporate these into your life. But I'll just give you some principles this morning. And again, these are very uh, practical, kind of nuts and bolts kind of thing. Not, nothing real profound here at all. But, but let me just give them to you. First of all, 
When you're facing a decision, and I'm talking about not what color socks to work uh, to, to work that day. I'm talking about something major, okay? When you're faced with a with a major decision, don't be super spiritual. Use some good common sense. J.I. Packer said, and I quote, We must be willing to think. It is false piety, super supernaturalism of an unhealthy pernicious sort that demands inward impressions with no rational base and declines to heed the constant biblical summons to consider. God made us thinking beings, and he guides our minds as we think things out in his presence, end quote. You know what? There are a lot of Christians who for some reason think that, you know, when you're facing a decision, you don't think, you don't reason, you don't use logic. That's unspiritual. You just got to kind of get into God's presence and feel, you know, because that's how the Holy Spirit leads us. He leads us by feelings. Look, God said in more than one place, but not the least of which in Isaiah chapter one, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. He gave you your mind. And we are to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He doesn't want you turning off your brain and just feeling, you know, because you're going to get into trouble that way. Don't be afraid to sit down when you're facing a very uh, important decision and to think a little bit. And don't be afraid to ask yourself some hard questions, questions like, Will my marriage and my family be adversely affected if I get into this new opportunity, this new job, or even this new ministry? Am I fully aware of all that's involved in this commitment? Am I rushing into this without fully knowing all that's involved? Could this new opportunity undermine my effectiveness in my already existing commitments. God does not want you to commit yourself to something or to someone and then later on go, well, now he's leading me to do this and that means I can't be faithful to doing what I promised you I would do. That is not God. God is a God who honors commitments and if you've made a commitment, he wants you to see it through. Will this opportunity enable me to use my God-given spiritual gifts in some way. In other words, is this opportunity going to help me to draw closer to God and be more effective? Or is this job going to, you know, make me work 80 or 90 hours a week and take me away from God and my family? Oh, yes, but the money is so good. Wrong motivation. Wrong motivation. Don't ever use money as a bottom line indication of what God wants you to do. You will get into trouble every time. The greater issue is, how is it going to glorify God? Am I going to be able to use my God-given gifts in some way? And finally, these are just some sample questions to ask yourself. What are my motives for considering this opportunity? And may I just say this, be suspicious of your own motives. Be suspicious of your own motives. They're often tainted by self-interest and not God's best interest. Keep your motives in check. So the first one is don't be super spiritual. You know, use some good common sense. Number two, be willing to seek counsel from Christians who are older and wiser than you. You know, we must be willing to take advice. It is the sign of a sign of conceit and immaturity 
not to seek out advice in the face of important decisions. Now, understand God will often give us wise counsel through others. However, you want to make sure you're getting wise, godly counsel. That You're not just going to your best friend who's going to probably tell you what you want to hear. Make sure that you're going to uh, approach someone who's going to give you wise, godly counsel. And you do that by first checking out their life. What's their life like? Are they living in obedience? Are they a person of integrity? Are they obviously a spiritual person who's been walking with God for many years, who thinks before they speak, and who will give you counsel based on the word and not on their feelings? And once you find somebody like that, be prepared. Because a godly counselor is going to tell you the truth whether you want to hear it or not. But you want to hear it. Believe me, you do. A person who loves the Lord and is committed to God and His Word is going to be honest with you. That's the benefit of wise, godly counsel. People are going to be objective. They're going to be hard-hitting. They're not going to just placate. They're going to really probe you. And that's what you want. That's why in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14, it says... Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Chapter 15, verse 22. Without counsel, plans go awry. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. It's good to get input from different godly people. But listen to me now. Hear me. Don't rely on other people to make the decision for you. This is your decision. And God will lead nobody more than you in making this decision. But take to heart whatever wisdom and insights other godly saints can give to you. That's wise in making your decision. Number three, you must be open to and prepared for the Lord to lead you in new ways. If you are serious about knowing the Lord's will and honestly seeking it, You've got to be prepared for the Lord to lead you in new ways. And that's very important. One pastor and author put it this way. He said, if there's one thing I have most learned about the Lord's guidance is that it, he does not often lead us in old ways. God is creative. He is creative in his plans for his children's lives, end quote. In other words, God will often use the crisis that drove you to your knees to find the will of God to redirect your life or your ministry. We have to be open to that. And the reason is because God does not want us to become stagnant and complacent, which we tend to fall into. He says, I be, behold, I make all things new. He wants to keep things fresh in our lives. He doesn't want us getting comfortable because when we're comfortable, we stop growing. He's always wanting to challenge us, stretch us, and sometimes that means he will redirect our lives into some whole new venture. We have to be open to that. I heard a story of a gentleman on the West Coast. Him and his wife were, uh, were solid Christians. He, he had a thriving computer business. He sold computers and different computer systems and, and made a lot of money. And then all of a sudden, one day, sales began to drop off. And they began to drop off so dramatically over the next few months, he really actually lost his business. And him and his wife had been praying, but now they really kicked it into high gear. And God revealed that he had removed his business from him because he wanted to redirect him and his wife into the mission field. And he, so they obeyed, and he later on said, you know what, 
I cannot tell you the joy I have today. I mean, when I made money, I had a lot of material things and a measure of happiness. But I have such joy today. Now, that's a dramatic example. And maybe God is not trying to do something quite as dramatic in your life. But be open to the fact that God is wanting to do a new thing. Ask him, Lord, is there something you want to do in my life that's maybe totally new? I'm open to it. A little scared, but I'm open to it. And let the Lord lead you. Number four, don't be paralyzed by indecision. Do something and trust God to lead you. Now, Psalm 37, verse 4, which we've already quoted in this series. Let me read it again. Where the psalmist said, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Now, one way of interpreting that, which I think is valid, is this. If you really delight yourself in God, if he's number one, your first love, if you're really madly in love with the Lord, want to please him, you know what? The psalmist is saying he will actually put into your heart his desires. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If God hasn't made his will clear to you, even though you have prayed and sought him, there might come a time when you just simply need to do what's in your heart. An example of this, I think, that might be helpful would be Paul's missionary journeys. How do you think Paul decided what city or what area he was going to go to? He just went where he wanted. <gasps> You're kidding me. No. He went where he was not paralyzed by indecision. He didn't rack himself staying up at night wondering, oh, what if I do the wrong thing? What if I get out of God's will? He didn't do that. I'll give an example. Acts chapter 16, verse 7. It says, after they had come to Mycenae, they tried, Paul's missionary team, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. The key word is tried. Tried. They tried to go to Bithynia. That's where they wanted to go. But we don't know, and we don't know how the Holy Spirit did it, but somehow he closed the door and said, Paul, no, this is not the direction I want you to take. So, Paul in his own way, and I'm paraphrasing, must have said, well, okay, Lord, no problem. I'll just go a different direction. And he finally was able, after he bounced off a couple of closed doors, he was able to find the open door that God was leading him through. Listen to me. God has taught us through his word that if we as his children are honest with ourselves and we really want to obey his will in everything, if we do take a step in the wrong direction, make a faulty decision, he'll intervene and he'll redirect us. Because he loves us and wants to direct our lives. I mean, all you have to do is read the book of Proverbs, a book full of wisdom because God wants us to be wise in our decisions. Again, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him, and here's the promise, he will direct your paths. Sometimes we just need to take a step of faith. I mean, you've prayed, you've waited, nothing is happening. What's in your heart? 
sometimes we just need to take a step in faith and see if God's in it. I always think of Jonathan, Saul's son, the first king of Israel, Saul, his son Jonathan. One day, uh, they were kind of, Israel was encamped on one side of the valley and the Philistines were encamped on the other. And Saul was, you know, not a very godly man. And so he didn't know what to do. He was paralyzed by indecision. So he's sitting under a tree one day, and I don't know what he's doing. He's just not doing anything. Now, Jonathan is in his tent with his armor bearer. And he looks over at the armor bearer and says, you know what? I just got a crazy thought. He said, you know, God is God, right? He doesn't need to deliver the Philistines into the hands of Israel's Israel by using a whole army. He can use just the two of us if he wants, couldn't he? Yeah, I guess so. What are you thinking, Jonathan? I'm thinking we ought to go over there and see if God's in this thing. Let's see if God wants to deliver the Philistines into the hands of Israel just using us two. Let's go for it. But we want to make sure God's in this thing, Jonathan said. That was pretty smart. He said, look, here's the thing. We're going to go across the valley. When we come to the other side where the Philistines are encamped on top of the hill, if the sentries look down at us and say, hey, you guys, stay where you are. We're going to come down there and show you a thing or two. We know God's not in this thing. We're going to scoot back to camp as fast as we can. But if we get there and the sentry looks down and goes, hey, you two, come on up here. We'll show you a thing or two. Then we know God's in it. So they went. The sentry said, hey, you two, come on up here. We'll show you a thing or two. Jonathan looks over at his armor bearer and says, all right, God's in it. And they scurried up on their hands and knees up the hill, and they jumped in the midst of the Philistines, drew their swords, and began to hack Philistines all over the place. And, and God began to throw them into confusion, and God began to rout the Philistines. And by this time now, Saul realizes his son is gone. There's a big commotion across the valley. And so Saul joins in the battle, and God gives Israel a tremendous victory. But Jonathan was the kind of a guy that said, look, we've waited for God, and now maybe God's waiting for us. But there's a very important principle here. Let's do something. It's like the four lepers in the days of, I think it was Hezekiah, when the city was starving because it was cut off by the Assyrians. And since the lepers had to live outside the city because they were lepers, they couldn't live among the regular people, they would eat the food that came over the wall. In other words, they would live near the city garbage dump and eat the scraps. Of course, people were starving inside the city. Nothing much was coming over the wall. And so they said, look at one another, just four bags of bones, really. said, look, why sit here until we die? Let's do something. Let's go over to the Assyrians and surrender. They may kill us, but we're going to die anyways. But if they don't kill us, at least we'll get something to eat. So they did. You can't argue with the logic. So they did. And God also used them to bring about an incredible turn of events. Folks, so many Christians are paralyzed by indecision. They're so desperately waiting for God, they do nothing. I'm convinced a lot of Christians are waiting on heaven, but heaven is waiting on them. And because they're paralyzed by indecision and doing nothing for God, then they wonder why their Christian life is so dry and so dead and so unfulfilling. Along these lines, Spurgeon wrote this about doing God's will. He said, and I quote, Some of you good people 
who do nothing except go to public meetings and Bible readings and prophetic conferences and other forms of spiritual dissipation would be a good deal better Christians if you would look after the poor and needy around you. If you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go and tell the gospel to dying men, you will you would find your spiritual health mightily restored. For very much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding and no working makes men spiritual dyspeptics. Be idle, careless, with nothing to live for, nothing to care for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead back to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of the Savior, no gray-headed man to enlighten in the things of God, no object, in fact, to live for. And who wonders if you begin to groan and to murmur and to look within until you are ready to die of despair? He said, let us have practical Christianity, end quote. I mean, I agree with that. Let's do something, he's saying. Now, I want to balance this, doing something with waiting, because there is a balance, okay? I mean, there are times when God is going to tell you to wait. Just wait and seek me. And then there are times God is going to tell you, you've waited long enough, do something and let me guide you. Don't sit there till you die. What's in your heart? Begin to step out in faith and see if I'm in it. Now, understand this. It's a lot easier to be redirected if you take a wrong step in ministry. It's a lot harder if you take a wrong step in marriage. So you want to make sure you don't just rush ahead. When I talk about, again, do something. Okay, let's get married. Well, no, I'm not quite... You know, I mean, that's something you want to make sure you're really praying. So I've got about. But listen, hear me. If you've met somebody that you've been praying for a spouse for a long time, and you've met somebody, and you've given God time to show you their heart a little bit, that's a very important principle. And you have prayed together, and you've honored God by being faithful to purity, and you have prayed and learned their heart and found out that they have a heart for God as well, and you're both on the same page about where you want to be with God and how you want to serve God. And now you're beginning to seek God for marriage. And after time, if you, as you prayed, maybe fasted, God has not written his will across the sky. If it's in your heart to marry that person, begin to make plans for marriage. But be open to the possibility that God might redirect you. But at those times, do what's in your heart. Because if you've honored God, I believe he will give you the desires of your heart. Too many Christians are paralyzed by indecision. I've always believed that God has an easier time, if I can put it that way. He's God. Nothing's hard for him. But God always has an easier time directing our lives when we're moving for him and doing something and serving him. Number five, sin will break your fellowship with God and allow, listen, feelings to take over and give you the, the false impression that you are being led by God. This is a big one. Jesus said... In Psalm 40, verse 8, speaking, of course, through David, but the Lord Jesus saying, I delight to do your will, O my God, speaking to his Father, and your law is within my heart. Now, that's a very important point. Your law, your word, your will is in my heart. Listen, if that is true about you, if you've really hidden God's word in your heart, because you really want to do his will and you're trying your best to obey what he's already said to you in the word, then it's legitimate to let your heart lead you at times when God is silent. But 
if there is sin in your life, then you are susceptible to being led by feelings and not by the Holy Spirit. And you won't even realize it. That's why you do not want to be out of fellowship with God when you are facing major decisions. I always think of Samson. Uh, he was a man that God had raised up. And Samson was uh, a man that the Spirit of God was mightily upon. Gave him superhuman strength. And he would just wipe out the Philistines any opportunity that came against him. Sometimes they wouldn't even come against him. He'd go pick a fight with them. But he was a man who had incredible strength. But one day he fell in love with a Philistine woman named Delilah. And you know the story. She was told by the Philistines, you need to get the secret of his strength because we need to kill this guy. And so she enticed him and she seduced him. And finally he gave to her the secret of his strength, which was his hair. No razor has ever come upon my head since the time I was born. Well, folks, there was nothing magic about his hair. But the angel, the Lord, had said to his parents before he was born, this child that will be conceived is to be a Nazarite, which means consecrated to God, which further means no razor is to come upon his head. His strength was in his consecration to God. That's what his hair symbolized. And when Delilah found out the secret of his strength, and she lulled him to sleep in her arms, she cut his hair, and then called for the Philistines who were waiting in the other room to come and to capture him. And it says that Samson awoke from his sleep. That's the problem. Too many Christians are sleeping and not keeping their eyes open, looking at what the devil's trying to do. He awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before, as at other times, and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. You know, I'm convinced there are many Christians who earlier in their lives were totally spirit-filled, dynamic. And every time they sought God, God answered and guided them. And it was incredible, the things God did. But somewhere along the way, they kind of drifted from the Lord, got back into sin. And they don't really realize that the Lord is not with them anymore in the sense that his voice is not speaking to them through their heart. So now they're being led by their feelings and their emotions, and they don't even realize what's going on. And when that happens, you could be convinced that God is telling you to do things that are completely off the wall. As I was studying for this message, I came across a little thing about Jessica Hahn. Remember her? I had forgotten about her, but she was the former church secretary who committed immoral acts with Jim Baker, the former host of the PTL club, and later brought down the PTL empire. She said that God had given her real peace about granting an interview to Playboy magazine and posing for topless pictures. She said that she still considers herself a Christian, but goes to God one-on-one, -on -one, not through any church or organization. Now, I don't know Ms. Hahn's heart. I can't tell you whether she really knows the Lord or not. All I do know is this. When we get off into sin, we can have real peace about a lot of goofy things that God is not leading us into. You cannot use your feelings to make decisions. Now, listen to me. If you're walking in the Spirit, you can look to your heart. But if you're out of fellowship with God, do not base important decisions on your feelings. Charles Stanley makes this point. He said, you cannot trust your feelings when it comes to discovering God's will. He's talking about you being out of fellowship with God, of course. Oh, <laughs> he, he, he said, I've heard people say things like, oh, 
I just feel wonderful about this. I think this is what we're going to do. Well, is it what God wants you to do? Well, I feel good about it. Yes, but is it what God wants? Well, it looks like everything's working out. Well, but have you asked God? Well, no. He said, look, if you have sin in your life, willful, deliberate sin, trying to discover God's will is going to be very frustrating. Even if you're saying to God, God, I really want to know your will in my life in this area. Whatever you say I'll do, I'm willing to do whatever you want. But God, don't worry about this area of sin right now. I'll take care of that later. I've just got to know your will now. I'll deal with that whole thing later. Stanley goes on to say, God is not going to let you ignore sin. I am not saying that you will never know the will of God if there is sin in your life. Sometimes God may show you exactly what to do, but then he will say to you, it will never work until you deal with the sin problem. There is a danger in praying and asking uh, for God to show you his plan in a major decision when there is willful sin in your life. And of course, the classic scripture on that is Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, where God says, look, he said, my hand is not short that it cannot save. Neither is my ear heavy that it cannot hear. It's your sins. They have separated you from me. Your iniquities have caused me to close my ears to your prayers. God wants us to take care of the sin first. Now, None of us are going to be perfect, and God is not looking for perfection. What he's looking for is, is a, a sincerity in walking with him. Not where you're living in some sin and justifying it, and then wanting God to lead and bless you. Take care of the sin first. And remember this, as someone has said, the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. So be careful. God would never lead you into a compromising, sinful situation or opportunity, no matter how good the money is, no matter what the benefits are, because God's grace cannot keep you in a sinful situation. Number six, when it comes to knowing the will of God, remember the pattern that Jesus gave us. Jesus, the one who said in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his crucifixion, he prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Father, if there is any other way for people to be saved other than me going to the cross, then Father, please, let's go that way. But nevertheless, it's not what I will that's important. It's what you will. That's the pattern. And then when Jesus was teaching us to pray in Luke 11, verse 2, he said, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. Now, there are several ways a person can say, your will be done in my life. They could say it with clenched teeth and clenched fists. Okay, fine. Your will be done. Or they could say it with the sobs of defeat. All right, fine, you don't love me. You won't give me what I want. Your will be done. Or you can say it with the joy of a child who wants to do their father's will. Father, here's what I want, but I'm an idiot. What do I know? You're God. You're God, Lord. You know what's best. You know what's coming down the road. Lord, I want your will, not mine. See, that's the heart of a true child of God. That was the heart of the son who said, I delight 
in doing your will, O my Father. Which means, if God locks the door on a decision, don't try to climb in through a window. Just accept it. If you really are sincere and you really want God's will, if he closes a door, don't kick it open. Because his will is best. Finally, number seven, delayed obedience is better than no obedience. You know, at one point in his ministry, Jesus told a story about a father who had two sons. The father owned a vineyard. And he came to his first son one day and said, Son, will you work in my vineyard today? And the son said, I won't. But later he repented and went and did it. Likewise, the father came to the second son that day and said, Son, will you also go and work in my vineyard today? And the son said, I go, sir. Yes, father, I'll do whatever you want. But he didn't. Jesus said to the crowd that was listening, Which one do you think actually did the will of his father? And they said, Well, of course, the first of the two sons, in spite of the fact that he initially had refused. And Jesus showed them that this is exactly the, was exactly the contrast between the religious leaders of his day and harlots and tax collectors that followed Jesus. The religious people of his day, the scribes and Pharisees, they gave God lip service. God said, do this, we will, Lord. But they never did it. When Jesus came to the tax collectors and harlots, the sinners, they said, this is God's will. They initially said, well, we're not going to do that. Later they repented and they went ahead and did it and began to follow Christ. And the application is very much to us today. And it's twofold. First of all, God doesn't honor lip service without obedience, no matter how religious you are. You can go to church every day of your life and give God all the lip service you want. God knows your heart. And if you're not going to obey what God has said, it's meaningless. Number two, it's never too late to start obeying God and putting him first. You might have been up to this point going, well, Lord, you know, I can't, I can't, I can't. Lord, I will. Now, let me just close with this thought, and then we're done. Remember this. Listen to me carefully. Sin isn't just doing what's wrong. It's not doing what's right. Let me say it again. Sin is not just doing what's wrong. It is also not doing what's right. There are sins of commission, and then there are sins of omission. What do I mean? Well, in the book of Judges, we see an interesting story. At this point in Israel's history, they were led by a woman named Deborah. She was a, a, a female judge who acted like a, a leader, a governor of the, of the land. And she sent the armies of Israel to do battle against the enemies of God, and God gave them an incredible victory. And so she thanks God by singing him a song that she had written called the Song of Deborah. But in that song, in verse 23 of Judges 5, it says, Curse Meros, said the angel of the Lord, curse its inhabitants bitterly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Apparently, there was a town called Meros, and none of its inhabitants bothered to come and fight alongside their Jewish brethren in fighting against the enemies of God. They just didn't bother. They just stayed home and did whatever they wanted to do. And the Bible is saying that the Lord condemned them 
not for doing what's wrong, but for not doing what was right. They should have been fighting the battles of the Lord, but they weren't. And that's why he condemned them. It's like what Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. In other words, if it's in your power to do good for somebody and you don't do it, that's actually sin. That's a sin of omission. A sin of omission. It was in your power to do good. You didn't do it. God considers that wrong. Wrong. Listen to me. Where Spurgeon said inactivity is unhealthy to your Christian walk, I'm going to take it one step farther and say that inactivity, doing nothing for God when you should be doing something, is more than just unhealthy. It's sin. You and I, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We are to glorify God with our body and with our spirit, which now belong to him. We do not control our own lives anymore. We are the bond slaves of Jesus Christ. And it is sin for us to sit around doing nothing when we should be serving the Lord in something. Jesus may have saved you from going to the tavern. Praise the Lord. That was a sin of commission. Doing the wrong thing. Getting drunk. But now sitting in your house watching TV doing nothing, that's a sin of omission. You need to be out fighting the battles of the Lord. You need to be out serving the Lord. I know we all work. I know that you're, a lot of you are tired. All as I'm saying is, you have been saved to serve, not to sit. And every one of us are going to stand before God someday and give an account. And you know what? You don't have to be a missionary in Africa. You could teach a Sunday school class. You can get involved in our Kids Hope program. You can be an usher, a greeter. You can do something. Oh, I don't have many talents. That's okay. We'll find something for you to do. Don't just do nothing. Oh, but I'm waiting for that big ministry. Hey, don't despise the days of small things. If you show yourself faithful in the little things, God will give you greater things. So sin is not just doing what's wrong. It's not doing what's right. God does not want us to be spiritual couch potatoes. And so know this, it's God's will that you don't sit there till you die. You just get up and do something. Get involved in ministry. And don't sit there thinking, well, because I'm not out there sinning, I'm okay. Are you out there serving? Because if you're not, you're not okay. So I hope that these four studies on knowing God's will have been helpful. And again, they're only principles. Because you have to walk with God on your own and let the Holy Spirit lead you in how you would apply these into your life. But he wants to lead you. Do you want to be led? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness. And Father, we just pray that you would lead us, but that you would work in our hearts that we would, with all of our heart, desire to do your will. Lord, thank you so much for all your grace. And we want to know your will. We want to delight in doing your will, O oh God. And the first thing that, that is your will is that we stop being comfortable, get up, and start doing something. The time is short. The work is great. The laborers are few. You're looking for those to send into the harvest Lord, may we say with all our hearts, Lord, here am I, send me.
Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.